Do you want to learn how to stay healthy, reverse many ailments, and live to a ripe old age without the diseases that almost every human being inevitably suffers from? Buckle on up as you are about to hear from a giant, a pioneer in health, who can show you how to be healthy the natural way without the nasty side effects of drugs. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest today, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Jr., is a surgeon, author, and former Olympic rowing champion. He is the author of the 2007 book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, in which he advocates for a low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet that avoids all animal products and oils. He was an army surgeon in Vietnam and was awarded the Bronze Star. He has served formally as the president of the staff and a member of the board of governors of the renowned Cleveland Clinic. In 2005, Dr. Esselstyn received the Benjamin Spock Award for Compassion in Medicine. In fact, he was the award's first recipient. And in 2009, he received the Distinguished Alumnus Award from the Cleveland Clinic Alumni Association. In 2010, he received the Greater Cleveland Sports Hall of Fame Award. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Dr. Esselstyn. Thank you, Eli. I am extremely excited to talk to you today because I have a feeling you might be very influential in my own health and in helping perhaps convert me a little bit to a more plant-based diet. How does that sound? Sounds, sounds like a very exciting morning. Absolutely. So I want to start by kind of going back to 1956, because there's not many people who actually have a gold medal. And you earned a gold medal in uh, men's eight rowing in the Melbourne, Australia Olympics. What was your diet like back then? I don't think we ought to spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> <laughs> what was your secret to winning the gold medal? Well, as the... Uh, as the Australian eight that came in second said to us <clears throat> at the 50th anniversary of our victory, I said, "Well, uh, what was your what was your plan in rowing against us in the in that final?" And he said, "We were going to jump you at the start, hold you off during the body of the race, and then take it up in our sprint." But he said, "We ran into a bunch of guys who wanted it more than we did," mm. and I think that was. That says it all, huh? Yep, so that's it. let's get right into the nitty-gritty here. Um, you were uh, featured in an incredible documentary called Forks Over Knives. And I use the word incredible because you actually changed my wife into a vegetarian approximately 10 years ago after she saw that film. 
She was uh, a meat eater. She <laughs> loved her lobster and everything else that was animal-based as well. Uh, and your, that film convinced her to turn around. Tell me a little bit about what was the turning point that influenced you on how important a plant-based diet is? Well, when I was chairman of our breast cancer task force, by the late 1970s, early 80s, I became quite uh, quite disillusioned with the fact that for no matter how many women I was doing surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And this led to a really kind of a, a bit of a global review of the situation. It was quite striking to see that there were other cultures where breast cancer rates were 30 and 40 times less frequent than the United States. Wow. For example, uh, that was in Kenya. If you look at rural Japan in the 1950s, breast cancer was very infrequently identified, but as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart, and still Japanese-American. And even more powerful, perhaps, was cancer of the prostate. In the entire nation of Japan, in 1958, how many autopsy-proven deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? 18 in the wow. entire nation. By 1978, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die this year in this country. So it became a little bit apparent that there was going to be perhaps more bang for the buck if we could look at these cultures that I was encountering where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent in these cultures where they were largely eating whole food, plant-based nutrition without oil. Because the dream became, if we could persuade persons to eat, to save themselves from the leading killer of women and men, they would simultaneously lessen the likelihood of their developing the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, and perhaps pancreatic. So that was uh, that was kind of the background. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. Now, today uh, you hear about all these so-called experts and doctors, even cardiologists, that seem to be touting this uh, coconut oil as this almost like new superfood. Uh, lots of doctors, including my own, have told me, uh, even cardiologists have told me, uh, to consume olive oil. Uh, now that does not, uh, they've actually touted these as actual wonder foods, uh, promoting them as heart healthy. Of course, uh, in uh, seeing your videos, you repeat yourself with great emphasis. <laughs> you repeat yourself several times to drive home the point of no oils. Tell us about that. Well, let me give you uh, some other background first. If we look at the autopsy of our GIs who die in Korea, it was really rather striking that 80% of those average 20-year-old GIs already had gross evidence of coronary artery disease, you can see without a microscope. Not enough for their cardiac events yet, but there they are at age 20 already with a foundation of heart disease. That study from 1953 was repeated. In 1999, this time looking at young women and men between the ages of 17 and 34 who had died of accidents, homicides, and suicides. And lo and behold, now we see the disease is ubiquitous. When you graduate from high school, you get a diploma, and you also get the foundation for heart disease. 
Not a good plan. Not enough for their cardiac events yet. But when people start having their cardiac events in their late 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth, it's with a disease that they've been developing since they were uh, in their early childhood and uh, certainly by teenage years. Now, you've asked about oil. Now, to give the rationale for oil, we have to, we have to do the following. We have to understand that we're all experts would agree that where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, is when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessel, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining called the endothelium. And most specifically, it's that magic molecule of gas that is produced by the endothelium that is responsible for the salvation and the protection all of our vasculature because of its wonderful functions. For example, nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro. It keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate, that's nitric oxide. Number three, Nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming thickened, stiff, or inflamed, protect us from getting high blood pressure or hypertension. Number four, here's the absolute key. A healthy, normal amount of nitric oxide will protect you from ever developing blockage or, or plaque. So literally, everybody on the planet, if they have developed cardiovascular disease, whether they are from London, Berlin, Chicago, New York, or Hoboken, is because by now they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, and compromised the capacity of their endothelial cells to make nitric oxide. They simply don't have enough to protect themselves from making blockages in plaque. Now, the good news here is that this is not a malignancy. This is a completely benign foodborne illness. And as we demonstrated time after time in our uh, research, once you can get patients to understand that never again are they to have passed through their lips something that is going to further destroy an already train-wrecked endothelium, then the endothelium will begin to recover. It will make enough nitric oxide so that there is no longer any disease progression. And we often see elements of disease uh, reversal. So the reason I'm so hard on the oils is study after study after study has shown that the oil will injure the endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide. And that's olive oil, corn oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil on a cracker, oil on a piece of bread, oil on a salad dressing. Oil injures the endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide. Sorry to divert like that, but I, I think it's important to give the background. And there has never been, there has once again never been a Mediterranean diet study with olive oil that shows that you can take patients who are seriously ill with heart disease and get it to halt and reverse. Wow. So I was at a salad bar the other day, and uh, of course the... Uh question you get after they mix your salad is what kind of dressing 
<laughs> and because I knew you were coming on my show, I actually told them to put the dressing on the side. And then when I looked at the dressing, I saw that there was a separation in the dressing, and there was all this oil just sort of like sitting on the top. And I uh, listened to your uh, uh, YouTube videos, and uh, I stopped using the oil. Uh, something told me that you were absolutely right. What do you suggest that people do with, uh, with their salads? Well, if they read our book, or the one by my wife and my daughter, the Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease Cookbook, there are multiple wonderful uh, salad dressings that are there uh, without oil. Absolutely. It, it's Look, we, we in medicine, let's get to the, to the heart of this. We in medicine right now really have to hang our heads in recognition of the fact that we have built a billion-dollar health industry around an illness that does not even exist in half the planet Earth. Why? For instance, if you're a cardiac surgeon and you're going to hang your shingle out in Okinawa, let's say rural China, the Papua Highlands in New Guinea, Central Africa, the Tarahumara Indians in northern Mexico, forget it. You better plan on selling pencils. They never have heart disease. Why? Because they all thrive on whole food, plant-based nutrition without oil. Why is it that the strongest man on the planet, a German by the name of Baboudian, is totally plant-based? Why is it that 15 members of the Tennessee Titans professional football team have switched to plant-based nutrition? Greater stamina, shorter recovery time. So a lot of doctors, you know, talk about the fact that you have to obviously have uh Fats, protein, carbohydrates. Uh, how do you suggest that people get their healthy fats? When you say a lot of doctors, how, when you said we say it like myself, how many doctors get an education in nutrition in medical school? How many? Not many. Zero. <laughs> yeah. Wow. How many get an education in nutrition in their postgraduate years? In their postgraduate Probably zero. Probably zero. <laughs> zero. So when you say a lot of doctors say, that's like listening to somebody off the street. What the, <laughs> Three years ago, I was invited by the American College of Cardiology to join and become a member of their nutrition committee. And I was happy to do that. And the nutrition committee of the American College of Cardiology is devoted to trying to change the ideas and the attitudes of cardiologists to really understand what is the causation of the disease that they have been designated to treat. Because we, we really have got to turn around uh, the Queen Mary here. We've got to get the cardiologists to understand how many of these patients don't have to have stent after stent after stent and bypass after bypass. Stents and bypass, when somebody is in an emergency situation, or having a heart attack can be absolutely life-saving, no question. However, when those procedures are often electively, when it's not an emergency, there is no prolongation of life. There's no protection from a future heart attack. These are the, these are the scientific data. Now, that is especially providing if you have these patients who are willing to make this type of, um, of transition. And it's interesting that many... Physicians will say, well, Dr. Esselstyn, uh, we think that maybe your nutrition is a little extreme uh, or strict or severe, and patients won't follow it. Well, 
couple of things here. When half the planet is already eating what I'm suggesting, uh, half the planet isn't extreme. I think what we all think of now is the most extreme diet on the planet is the one that is eaten regularly by Europeans, Americans, South Africans, and Australia. And Australia. The eating, the animal, animal diet, the high-fat high animal and dairy diet literally guarantees that Americans are going to have some kind of horrible chronic illness before they die. Totally unnecessary, and it's foodborne. But the food that is bad for you isn't going to kill you when you first try it or the second time you try it, but when you keep eating this decade after decade after decade, it takes a huge assault on your physiology, and you end up with something like cardiovascular disease, strokes, vascular dementia, diabetes, hypertension, all these illnesses that really are, are, never, are not seen in these other populations. For example, when Bill Connor went to the Tarahumara Indians in northern Mexico and, and measured some 583 of them, how many were overweight? Zero. How many had wow. high blood pressure? Zero. Wow. What did they eat? They ate the three sisters, beans, corn, and squash. And they had no nutritional deficits. That's amazing. So I'm going to reveal a little something to you here and to my listening audience. Uh, I am a, I guess you can call me a pescatarian at this point, but I'm not convinced that I should be a pescatarian. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, that's why, <laughs> partly I'm very excited about having you on my show. Uh, tell me why uh, I shouldn't maybe uh, have be having that fish and seafood. Well, we we just we've established the fact that you want to do this. You want to hold on to all the nitric oxide you can. You do not want to injure your endothelial cells. Now, with fish, there's uh, there are several important points. When you look at the epidemiology or the the raw the raw data on the Inuit from uh, Greenland, and you autopsy those Inuit, the Eskimos who thrive on fish, they are absolutely loaded with cardiovascular disease. Their health is terrible. Wow. And when you eat fish, what do you do to your endothelial cells? You injure. And also fish create the highest levels of what we call TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. That is, for persons like yourself who is an omnivore, you possess in your gut bacteria so that every time that you ingest uh, lecithin and carnitine, which are the molecules that are found in these animal foods, whether it's dairy, steak, meat, pork, lamb, uh, seafood, dairy, and so forth, uh, every time you eat these foods, your bacteria are going to metabolize the lecithin and carnitine into TMA, trimethylamine, which is rapidly oxidized in your liver to trimethylamine oxide, which injures blood vessels. And the fish creates higher levels of TMAO than any other animal protein. Well, this is interesting. Now, of course... Yeah, yeah, eating, it's a choice. It's a choice. Eating fish is like saying it's your choice of whether you want to be shot or hung. <laughs> yes, what a choice. 
Um, so of course my doctors, of course, who, who have probably zero, uh, you know, training in, in nutrition, of course, will always uh, tell me that I should uh, eat wild caught salmon as opposed to farm raised salmon. So uh, wild caught salmon is not going to be uh, necessarily any better, is it? Just no salmon. Like somebody... <laughs> oh no, no. It's a little bit like somebody who says to me that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, they. Uh, they're doing my program 80% of the time or 90% of the time. And my immediate response is, I have no idea whose program you're doing, but that's not mine. Yeah. I mean, I recall uh, when I was speaking in Dallas a year or so ago, there was a young physician who came up to me afterwards and said, you know, what about on the weekends? He said, you know, I don't, I'm 38 years old. I don't have any heart disease. Why shouldn't I really eat what I want to eat on the weekends? And I said, hey, this is America. You can eat whatever you want anytime. But if you ask me about why you wouldn't want to do it on the weekends, I said, let's think about it. A weekend is two days. So that's 52 weeks. That's 104 days out of 365 that you are doing your darndest to destroy your endothelial cells. Maybe you're right. Maybe it will. You'll have a smaller stroke. Maybe you'll get a uh, a smaller heart attack. Maybe you'll just have mild erectile dysfunction. And he said, "Oh, I didn't think of it that way." <laughs> so, what if uh, I, I understand you have a background in endocrine uh, medicine? Um, what if you take for thyroid, for instance, like a porcine-based medicine? Is there a differentiation in medicine that's uh, animal-based? Well, with thyroid, if it's a thyroid replacement, it's uh, it's really quite safe if you take Synthroid. And Synthroid, as the name suggests, was synthetically made. And the reason it's so safe is it, it is precisely the same molecule that your body, my body, and everybody else's is making. So you, in essence, when you're taking a Synthroid, you're not taking a foreign substance. And if they uh, just are patient to get the dose correct, it's an uh, excellent way of uh, taking care of thyroid replacement when it's required. Hmm, interesting. So another controversial little uh, topic here um, is avocados and nuts. Uh, can everybody eat avocados and nuts, or should certain people be avoiding that, and why? Well, the, uh, I guess I confess to being a bit of an outlier here, I have no problem with persons who don't have a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease uh, eating uh, nuts or eating avocado. Now, once somebody has established cardiovascular disease, eating nuts and avocado, that's a lot of saturated fat. And how many people do you know who will eat one nut? Impossible. Yeah. I mean, Suppose I, were, suppose I was able to say that it would be okay to have three English walnuts on your cereal every morning. That's not what people would hear. They'd say that Dr. Esselstyn said nuts were okay. And then they'll be in the glove compartment. They'll be at the workbench, the bathroom, the kitchen, the dining room, the hallway, the living room. Nuts are really uh, quite uh, addicting. Filled with saturated fat. And as our avocado, and I have yet to see a study of patients who are seriously ill 
with cardiovascular disease where they were given nuts and cashews and peanut butter and nut butter and never halt or reverse the disease. Hmm. Well said. So tell us um, a little bit about President Bill Clinton, who advocates for your diet, and what made him go on this diet, and tell us that story. Well, I've not met the man, but I, uh, when he had his first heart attack, I wanted to see if there'd be an opportunity to get him a copy of, the, of our book, and then through a friend who was able to make the uh, contact, he uh, presented him with my book, and he was, he was kind enough on, on, I guess it was uh, CNN, uh, several years ago when he made a, a friendly comment about my book, about the one by Dr. Colin Campbell and his son Tom, The China Study, and that one by Dean Ornish. And he was uh, appreciative of uh, the research and groundwork that the three of us had uh, talked about and discussed in our, in our books. And uh, I think that the key thing will be if, if President Clinton is, is able to, with all his travels and uh, many encounters, whether he can stick stick with it or not, that'll be the uh, that'll be the where the rubber meets the road, right there. So tell us a little bit about how important cruciferous vegetables are, and tell people what crucifer, cruciferous vegetables, which is hard to pronounce, what exactly they are. Well, I think it's when the blossom shows the cross, they, uh, that's where the, the cruciferous idea comes from. But uh, cruciferous vegetables have a compound called sulforaphane. And sulforaphane happens to be sort of a very strong uh, anti-cancer agent. And uh, like so many uh, green leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables have enormous numbers of phytonutrients and many things that we probably still haven't even identified, which do nothing but support so many of our important biochemical reactions and equations that occur in our bodies uh, all day long. And uh, so we feel that the greens are an important part of our program. In the last six and a half years, we've uh, changed it to the point where I now, uh, let's, let's just pretend that I've got a patient before me who happens to have um, cardiovascular disease, and I ask them to pretend that their head could be shrunk, shrunk, small enough so they could get inside the artery. And they would see that that plaque and blockages that they have is an absolute cauldron of oxidative inflammation. So we need antioxidants. No, do not go down to the health food store and buy a jug of pills that says antioxidant because it doesn't work and it's going to be harmful. I want them to get their antioxidants from food. Fair enough. What food? Food that is high in what we call ORAC value, O-R-A-C, oxygen radical absorptive capacity. So this means if you're having raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries on your morning oat cereal, that's a terrific start, but nothing can trump the antioxidant value of a green leafy vegetable. Therefore, I need you to chew Six times a day, not smoothies, not juicing. I need you to chew a green leafy vegetable six times a day that is roughly the size of your fist after it has first been boiled in water or steamed five and a half to six minutes so it's nice and tender. Then you must then anoint it 
with several drops of a delightful balsamic vinegar. Why? Because the acetic acid in the balsamic vinegar has been shown to restore the nitric oxide synthase enzyme contained within the endothelial cell that is responsible for making nitric oxide. That's the molecule that we want back again. So I need you to chew this uh, alongside your breakfast cereal, again as a mid-morning snack, again with your lunch and sandwich, that's three, mid-afternoon four, dinner time five, and I adore it when you have that evening snack of kale. What are you doing? All day long, you are basking and bathing that horrible oxidative cauldron of inflammation with nature's most powerful antioxidant. Now, what are the greens that I'm talking about? They are bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard green, beet greens, mustard green, turnip greens, napa cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula, and asparagus. And the top six are, are kale, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, big greens, and beets. So that's the, the, the story on the greens. And the other reason, we're now, what we're after here is this. By now in this discussion that you and I have had today, you and your audience should know, cardiovascular disease develops when you have so sufficiently destroyed the ability of your endothelial cells to make nitric oxide. So we need nitric oxide. Now, we know that in somebody who's beautifully healthy at age 50, they will not be able to only make 50% of the nitric oxide they made when they were 25. And therefore, we're going to look at another organ system that will give us more nitric oxide besides the endothelial cells, and that's your gastrointestinal tract. How does that happen? It's another reason for the green leafy vegetables. The green leafy vegetables are essentially nitrates. When you chew the nitrate, the nitrate is now going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue, which will, while you're chewing, they will reduce the nitrate in your mouth to nitrites. When you swallow the nitrite, your gastrointestinal acid, your gastric acid will further reduce the nitrite to nitric oxide, which can now enter your nitric oxide pool. And that's another reason for having these people consuming the greens throughout the day. We hear about omega, we hear about the omega-6s, we hear about the omega-3s, and we're told that we need the omega-3s particularly. Uh, now, there's a recent study that I just saw that indicated that Apparently, the omega-3s didn't seem to have a whole lot of uh, impact upon uh, cardiovascular health, you know. So that, that was that one recent study. Um, however, my uh, uh, practitioners uh, have me taking uh, omega-3s with all this EPA and DHA in these pills. In fact, I had one guy who wanted to put me on 12 or 13 different things, you know, the uh, CoQ10s and, uh, you know, the vitamin Ds and all these other things. And when I questioned him about it, he said, well, I, I take 25 of them. So what is your take on, I mean, is there any vitamins that are good to take? Or should we all get it, should get it all in the food? I think yeah, it's important to think about, uh, I like our patients to take B12, and I like them to check their vitamin D. If it's below normal, maybe 
a daily uh, supplement of one to 2,000 international units of D3 uh, that will kick them up into the low normal. I don't think there's any reason to have to go much beyond that. But uh, I'm not a great fan of multivitamins. As far as the omega-3, it's important probably in patients who are placed, I like them to take either two two tablespoons of flaxseed meal or chia seeds. And when you combine that with eating the greens that we've talked about, that really should keep people at a safe level of omega-3, but they can always check it to be, be sure they're in an acceptable range. But you know, you have to think for a moment. Here the Okinawans are, the longest live people on the planet. How many of them are worried about multivitamins or <laughs> omega-3? How often do the rural Chinese have their omega-3 checked? You know, I think you, you really want to rely on your food, but I do want people to be sure they're getting uh, adequate amounts of uh, omega-3, especially in my group of patients who may have cardiovascular disease. Uh, as far as, uh, I think there are several recent studies that clearly point out that just taking something like a, a multivitamin uh, is not at all helpful. And there's some questions about whether they may be harmful. Interesting. So, of course, there's a, a billion-dollar industry today on this one pill called statins. Uh, you have high cholesterol, and the first thing your doctor does is put you on a statin. Tell us your thoughts about that. Well, first of all, the, when you, the first thing the doctor does is put a statin because they don't uh, have the time to talk to patients about lifestyle change. See, a statin has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the causation of the illness cardiovascular disease. The statin sort of accepts the fact that cholesterol is the culprit and will try to lower your cholesterol. But that's, that's not the answer. Remember, we've just now spent 30 minutes talking about the answer. The answer is to restore the capacity of your endothelial cells to make nitric oxide. Because it's when you destroyed your endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide and your nitric oxide ran so low that you were no longer able to protect yourself from making blockages and plaque. Now, in my practice, almost all the patients that come in to see me already have two physicians. They have a family doctor and they have a cardiologist. And the last thing I'm going to do is get into any kind of a wrestling match with their doctors over uh, their medication. But I think it's important that these patients be their own advocate. And as they're eating whole food, plant-based nutrition, and as their cholesterol comes down, I think they can make a very valid argument for getting the patient, the physicians to remove, to lower uh, their statin dose. I should mention that there are many patients in uh, in my practice who have found that they simply were not able to take any statin because there were such severe side effects. Some of these, many about anywhere between 13 and 14 percent of these people are miserable with neuromuscular pain uh, that is sometimes extremely uh, disabling. Uh, they can have liver disease, they can have brain fog, and statins are known to cause diabetes in a certain percent. So it's when you think about what does the drug do, statins are supposed to interfere with an enzyme system in, the, in our liver, which is responsible for making cholesterol. Now, 
when I say interfere, that's a nice way of saying really what they're doing is they're poisoning an enzyme system in our liver. But the people who devise statin drugs obviously couldn't tell the public it was poisoning their liver. So they chose to use another word and they say inhibit. It's so it's on a, a cute way of, of of avoiding the word poison. But you know, you have to ask yourself, how many statin drugs do you suppose the Okinawans are taking? Or those in rural China? Or the Tarahumara in northern Mexico who never had this disease? And to my way of thinking, the statin is a, 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 the ability to whip out a prescription pad and write it for a statin is a miserable excuse for not ta- sitting down and talking with the patient about what is the causation of the illness. And physicians tell me that, well, they try, but their their patients won't follow our program. Well, we've now had uh, over a thousand patients that we've treated who follow it. Why are they following the program in Cleveland? And I think if you're going to get patients to make a lifestyle change, it's absolutely essential that several things happen. One, you must show the patient respect. And therefore, we almost invariably, if you're going to ask these patients to make a lifestyle change, it's essentially you have the spouse or significant other in attendance, and you must you must give them your time. Uh, two weeks, I have a uh, once a month an intensive counseling seminar. It's one six-hour day long, and these patients, in addition to learning all about how they have created their disease, and and precisely how it is that we are going to empower them to be the locus of control to halt and to reverse their disease. But two weeks before these patients come, my secretary will give me a, uh, a roster of everyone who's coming with their phone number. And, I, and then I insist on personally calling each of these 12 to 14 persons myself so that I can get my arms around their story and at the same time provide them with an opportunity to ask questions of me so that coming to the seminar, we have a strong platform from which we can all move forward. And we looked up 200 of these patients uh, two years ago and found that uh, their adherent rate was close to 90%, 89.3%. We're pretty uh, proud of it, uh, although I'd like to have it be even higher. So kind of a long way to measure or answer your question about statins. So if these patients who already, already are on statins when they come to us, or they're concerned about their cholesterol, then I simply ask that maybe you can talk with your physician, and as your cholesterol comes down while you're following our program, they will respond by reducing your, your statin dose. Tell us a little bit more about how our listeners can actually contact you and take these seminars. Uh, let, me, let me first say one other word uh, about, about the, the, uh, the statins, that the persons who are unable to take the statins and go through, our, go through our program. Those patients who are not on the statins are in no way precluded from enjoying the same type of benefits as if they were on statins, providing they're following our program. Now, the woman who orchestrates all the registration for our program is my wonderful secretary, Jacqueline Fry, who you find most, uh, really, she's very gracious and very accommodating. And Jackie uh, works at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute, where I do. 
And her phone number is 216-448-8556. Can you repeat that one more time? That's 216-448-8556. Jacqueline Fry, F-R-E-Y. So, we hear about raw vegetables. Uh, So I would like to understand what your thoughts are, because there's a whole contingent of people who just eat raw vegetables. I believe that's the answer. Tell us your thoughts about raw versus cooked vegetables, and tell us how long vegetables should be cooked. Well, I, I, I think that the, the idea of, of making your patients eat raw, it would be a real turnoff. I mean, how many people like to eat raw mustard greens? You know, Not me. <laughs> you know, uh, but when you cook them to the point where they're ten, tender, and also, there is some interesting data that would suggest that when you chew vegetables would have been cooked, the, it's so much easier for your body to break down the cell membranes and more available phytonutrients, which is what we want. So for them to have it uh, ease, be easier to chew, uh, to taste better, and, uh, uh, and have more phytonutrients available, I, uh, I'm definitely uh, focused more on and having them cooked. Okay. So I'd like to get your thoughts on America's number one drug, caffeine. <laughs> we don't need a doctor's prescription for that. Tell us what your thoughts are. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the research that I'm particularly focused on for my heart patients uh, is that I don't mind them having decaf, and I don't mind them having tea with caffeine. But I don't like coffee with caffeine, and I'll tell you why. There is a, both a Greek and Italian study where healthy young subjects uh, were divided into two groups, one drinking coffee with caffeine, the other drinking coffee that was decaf. And after they would drink, they then had what we call the brachial artery test, which is a way to measure the ability of your endothelial cells to make nitric oxide, right? We're all, by this time, your audience is familiar with that. It was interesting that then they would, Italian study, they would switch groups. The group that previously was drinking decaf was now drinking coffee with caffeine. And it was always the group that was drinking coffee with caffeine that had a compromise of their endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide. Now, I've not seen that uh, in tea with caffeine, so and also, I, therefore, until I do, I, I, <laughs> I let patients have a tea with caffeine. Yes. So I can continue my green tea with caffeine at. Uh... Yeah. Okay, that's good. Uh, so there's a lot of controversy today about whole grains, um, and the controversy even comes through a book by Dr. David Perlmutter, Grain Brain. The surprising truth about wheat, carbs, and sugar, your brain's silent killers. Now, you talk about actually uh, whole grains as being something that's good for the diet, I believe. Uh, tell me what you differ in uh, terms of uh, what David, Dr. Perlmutter says. There have been a host of books that have come out, and, and I can appreciate with great sensitivity how difficult it may be for the public to see all these books. And uh, because anybody can write a book. And there were a host of books that came out uh, that was interesting where the, there was never any research by the author. 
It was just sort of cherry picking the literature and Barry Sears in the zone. Yep. And then we had Agatson and the South Beach diet. Then along came uh, uh, Atkins and uh, the high fat. Uh, and then along came Brain Brain, Wheat Belly, and then the Paleo. And this, the thing that is most characteristic of all those is that where was the research that the author had ever done? Or were they just sort of cherry-picking the literature to make a point? And uh, the two books that I know out there are where the author, several books, where author, the author has done the research. There's Dr. Dean Ornish from California and Dr. Neil Barnard uh, from Washington, D.C., and yours truly. I mean, before I ever wrote our book, I had done several studies on uh, proving that we could arrest and reverse heart disease. And we'll challenge our results with anybody. So I think that you uh, you have to really look for where is the author's research that is peer-reviewed. In other words, when they have published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, then it begins to take on a modicum of, of credibility. But when you're just writing a book, that's that's not the sense. So in the uh, some of these books, they when argue... You, go ahead. That's just, well, let's just think about it. Practically since time immemorial, there have been uh, areas of the planet where grain has been the staple. In Asia, it's been rice. In other places, the Mideast, it may have been uh, corn and wheat. And uh, yet, <laughs> in the, uh, and it's the case with the Okinawans, it's been, believe it or not, potatoes. But uh, pretty, pretty fascinating to see how these basic grains have been the, the energy sustenance for the for the planet. Yeah, so I was about to say, you know, um, the these books advocate the fact that these, um, uh, unfortunately, the wheat or supposedly in America uh, is genetically modified, and they're what they call franking grains. How much credibility do you put into that? You know, what you have to see is you've got to really see the the author do this. Where is the science? Yeah. Where is the science? Science. Yeah. Back to the science. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so uh, another. Uh, buzzword that we hear today that we didn't hear back in the uh, uh, old days. Uh, it's back probably come probably about the last 10 years and uh, and everybody's capitalizing on it is this word gluten. Uh, tell us your thoughts about gluten. Yeah, it's kind of a buzzword. There's probably one and a half percent of persons who have truly a, a celiac disease and, and really cannot eat uh, gluten. And, and those people obviously should avoid are the grains that are high in gluten. I mean, it's wheat, barley, and rye, and so forth. But they can have rice, and it's, it's not the, certainly not the end of the world. But well, if this occurs in 1.5% of the population, there's no need for the other 98.5% to think that they're, that if they have any little thing go wrong, that they're gluten-sensitive. Or yeah, I, I think it can be really uh, overdone. I was told 12 years ago that I was gluten sensitive. Uh, I had a doctor recently tell me that there's no such test for that. I'm confused. <laughs> tell me what your thoughts are on that. Well, see, that's probably the best thing in your situation would just be for a while. Eliminate the wheat, barley, and rye. Stick with the gluten-free grains and uh, see how you feel. Yeah. In my case, I didn't feel any different. <laughs> yeah. 
You're lousy all the time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so if you're a traveler, you know, go ahead. Try, try giving, try giving up all grain for maybe two weeks. Have energy. Uh, your, food, your energy food can be your potatoes. Just give yeah. up all grain for two weeks and, and see how you feel. Yeah. Good advice. Makes sense. Uh, so if you're a traveler, you know, uh, you alluded to the fact that it could be a little bit cha- challenging, like Bill Clinton could be challenging. He's running all over the world, uh, you know, and maintaining your kind of diet. I mean, is there is there like a, a, a freeze drying of your fruits and veggies that that can be helpful or is that not good? No, there are, no but there are increasingly there are companies that believe in that uh, can make uh, uh, whole food plant based nutrition and ship it all over the country if you'd like or they have the means to want to uh, purchase and not do any food preparation. But as far as uh, one of the, the key questions I have for every one of my patients is how often uh, are they eating out uh, at restaurants? Because you know how, uh, how terrible it is for a patient with cardiovascular disease eat at a restaurant where almost all restaurants, almost 99% of their menus are loaded with oil. Yeah. Uh, so I very clear that I want to know how many times they're eating out. And then I got to have a little humor with them. If they, let's say they're from Dallas, they eat out twice a week. Or say, okay, you eat out twice a week. Tell me, when you're eating out in Dallas, knowing you have this diagnosis of heart disease, tell me all those wonderful restaurants in Dallas that you go to that are known for the arrest and reversal of heart disease. <laughs> well, obviously. They're not, those are non-existent. So then I really try to emphasize a couple of points. Namely, look, whenever you eat out, there are four reasons to eat out. One, you don't have to do the cooking. Two, you don't have to do the dishes. Three, you don't, uh, no, three is the ambiance and four is the companionship. But you never, ever go out to eat to further destroy more endothelial cells. <laughs> so the, if a waiter or waitress comes to your table, you look them squarely in the eye. Take your glasses off. Make sure you've got them fixed with a stare. And say, let's be clear. I am deathly allergic to a single drop of any oil. That way you get their attention. If you just say, go easy on the oil, or I don't want the oil, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> Start searching through the menu with you, and you pl- take it. maybe you can get a vegetable from this serving, and maybe you can get a potato from here, and maybe you can put something together. Or often that doesn't work, and what you do is you say, "Could I please see the chef?" Chef comes out, they're flattered, and you say to them, "Listen, uh, I can't have any oil, animal protein, dairy, or sugar, and uh, therefore." Uh, and the chef smiles and says, I'll have something for you in 23 minutes. And so you have to really be a little bit uh, create creative. But there's absolutely no reason uh, to twice a week. That's 104 days out of 365. If you don't do this, you're further trashing your endothelial cells. I mean, this, is, this, this message is important for people who are 55 or 60 who think that they're beautifully healthy. Well, right around the corner, if they've been eating this way all their life, they've, they've already got the foundation for this disease. I mean, there's wonderful studies by Lou Culler, Lou Culler and his 10-year cardiovascular health study, 
He said that all males who were 60 years of age and all females who were 70 who have been exposed to the traditional Western diet have cardiovascular disease and should be treated as such. So our guest today on the Motivation Show has been Dr. Caldwell Esselstein, and uh, he has been a fountain of information here, (laughs) revelations that you can't even learn uh, by going through eight years of school, (laughs) which they don't teach you. And there are three recommendations I'd like to make to those people who are listening today. One is if you haven't seen Forks Over Knives yet, uh, get yourself a copy of that uh, documentary film. Number two is it's an absolute must to go out and buy his book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. I can tell you that that can change your entire life. Number three is I'd advise you to consider taking his uh, seminar and helping to uh, reverse a condition that you may potentially have, uh, or potentially reverse, I should say, uh, or at least uh, uh, help your body not to get uh, any worse. Uh, we have about a minute left in the show. Anything else you'd like to uh, share with our audience, Dr. Esselstein? Well, yes, I, I think that it's been about 17 or 18 years since I retired from surgery, but I find myself more passionate than ever uh, about the future of medicine because we really are on the, what could be the cusp of truly a seismic revolution in health. And the seismic revolution in health is never going to come about through another pill another procedure, or another operation. The seismic revolution in health will come about when we in the profession have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle, and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them as the locus of control to absolutely annihilate chronic illness. And I don't mean just heart disease. It includes strokes, it includes vascular dementia, hypertension, diabetes, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and multiple sclerosis, allergies, and asthma, and the list goes on. It's really as if the heavens have opened and finally said to the profession, listen, here is the greatest tool we've ever given you. There are no side effects and no added expense. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Our time has run out. Uh, We can talk forever. You've been a great guest. Thank you, Dr. Esselstyn. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.